This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and as always, I'm so glad you're here today. If you're a first-time listener, a special welcome. My guest this week is Rachel Den Hollander. You know her name. She's the woman who first came forward publicly to accuse Larry Nasser of sexual abuse within USA Gymnastics. You no doubt heard about the case and saw the news about close to 300 victims of Larry Nasser coming forward to testify publicly against him. What you may not know is that it never would have happened without Rachel. As a trained lawyer, Rachel knew it would be difficult to get Larry after he had been abusing people for decades. Sure enough, complaints about him had been surfacing for years, but they had been silenced and dismissed. And her new book, What is a Girl Worth, out in September, Rachel documents how carefully and meticulously she planned every detail of her chance to expose Larry for who he was and seek justice for the hundreds of victims he abused. Ultimately, it was Rachel that empowered those hundreds of women to reveal their names and find some sense of freedom in unshackling themselves from the shame that abuse can hold over someone. Not only that, Rachel has been very vocal about abuse within the church. As a strong Christian, she clearly loves the church and loves the Lord, but speaks openly about the problem of covering up abuse through what she calls community protectionism. One of Rachel's most important messages about the church is that it jumps too quickly to mercy and grace without addressing justice. We talk about that in today's interview, and you'll hear even I make the mistake of focusing on that over justice when I read off the iconic quote about her forgiveness for Larry in the hearing. Through reading this book and researching the case, I've learned so much about why people don't speak up sooner or why we think they don't speak up sooner, because too often they are silenced when they do. But even in this conversation with Rachel, I was pretty much schooled on the fact that God is not only concerned with grace and love, but justice as well. Jesus died for every one of us, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for our actions. Rachel is the mother of four young children, and she's essentially devoted her life for the past four years to ensuring justice is served, prioritized, and understood within culture and within the church culture. I didn't fully understand that until I talked with her today. She's a hero, you guys, and everyone needs to listen to what she has to say. Okay, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you are swamped with interviews, so it's really an honor to speak with you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's a privilege to have someone on the show who has helped so many other women find the courage to come forward and to speak out against not just one person's abuse, but institutional abuse across the spectrum. And I'm wondering if you can first just share a little bit about your history with gymnastics, how you got into the sport, and ultimately, and in short, how you became a victim of abuse within the system. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So gymnastics was a sport that I always, I just loved it. I loved what it required of me. I loved, I loved the perfection. I loved uh, the drive and the determination, the combination of uh, physical and mental uh, that you have to have with the sport. Um, but I actually wasn't able to start until uh, close to age 12. Um, it is an expensive sport, and I had to pay for lessons myself uh, to a large degree. Um, and so I, you know, I babysat and I paid for lessons. My mom and I cleaned the gym, and um, you know, so it, was, it had to be a little bit later for me. So I was never destined to be anything great by any stretch of the imagination. It was just something that I loved to do. 
but because of that, uh, partly because I started so late, uh, I was a lot more injury prone than a, than a gymnast uh, would have been at probably, you know, the five or six years old when they're normally at the level I was at. Um, you know, I was much taller by that point. And so I just started having uh, a lot of difficulty with pain in my wrists and pain in my lower back. Sports medicine doctors uh, in Kalamazoo, where I was living at the time, just really weren't able to offer anything. They weren't familiar with gymnastics. They weren't sure, um, you know, what to say other than we'll just rest you know, just take time off, take time off. And so we took two months off and it didn't fix the problem. And so their answer was, we'll take more time off. Um, you know, at that point I thought this is, you know, this is ridiculous. I at least need to get better even if I can't go back to the sport. And so there was a, a mom in our gym uh, who had a couple daughters on my team who were much more advanced. And so she had, she had kind of been down this road a few times and she said, well, why don't you, why don't you take Rachel to Larry? Um, you know, and you know, everybody at that time already knew who Larry was. You know, this was around 2000, and so you know, you know Carrie Strug's iconic vault uh, in 1996 that helped clinch the gold for the U.S. team uh, had a, it been four years earlier. Larry was the physician who is seen on you know on the TV helping Larry or helping uh, Carrie come off of the floor and taking care of her. Um, so everybody in the gymnastics world knew who Larry was. He was the Olympic team medical coordinator for USAG. He was the team doctor for Michigan State uh, Gymnastics. He was the team medical coordinator for the top gym in Michigan. Um, and he had, he had written a book on conditioning. He owned patents. He was the gold standard. Uh, in fact, there was actually a story that went around the gymnastics community about a, a girl who had broken her neck, a gymnast who had broken her neck in a gym in our area. Uh, and when she went to see Larry for treatment, he asked her, you know, don't, don't you have my book? my book on conditioning. And, and the gymnast said, yes, but we don't use it. And Larry told this athlete who was paralyzed, he said, if you had used my conditioning book, your injury was completely preventable. Mm -hmm. And so going into this appointment, you know, that was, that was the mindset that all of us had. This is the best. This is who is trusted to treat the Olympians. And it's a privilege to be able to see him. Uh, so we drove an hour and a half up to Lansing, uh, and, and that was kind of how my, uh, how my visit started. Uh, but it actually wasn't the first time I had experienced abuse. I had experienced abuse in a church context by age seven. Um, and so I, I also carried a lot of that history in with me. Um, at, the, at the time I was abused uh, in my church, I experienced both the positive and the negative responses of church abuse. Uh, there was a, a group in my church who were trained counselors, and they recognized the signs of grooming, and they came to my parents. They said, I think we have a problem. Uh, and my parents listened to them and put up immediate boundaries to protect me, but abuse had already taken place, and nobody knew that at the time. I hadn't told anyone. Um, but when my parents did that and took those steps to protect me, it also caused uh, many people in the church, particularly our friends who were the closest uh, to really turn a cold shoulder to us. They viewed us as having made an accusation without foundation. Um, and so by age eight, I was reeling from sexual abuse that I didn't understand and hadn't verbalized. And I had lost all of the adults that, uh, you know, that had formed the context of church uh, for me. And so the message that I carried away from that was, if you cannot prove this is abuse, don't speak up. And I had really internalized that, especially as I got older and started to realize why we had lost all those friendships at such an early age. So by the time I walked into Larry's office uh, in 2000, you know, I knew who he was, um, but I had also internalized the don't speak up if you can't prove it message. Mm -hmm. And that was a really, uh, really deadly combination for me. And so one thing that I find so um, 
just unbelievable about your story. You talk about the church and and then what happened to you with Larry Nasser. Um, but still throughout this whole situation, you've been dedicated to the church and dedicated to the gospel. And so I would love for you to talk about how did you know going through that and then seeing abuses that have gone on in the church as well since then? How did you know that how did you decide you weren't going to leave the church and that the church was worth fighting for and um, and just worth still being a part of despite these downfalls? Yeah, uh, it was it was quite a process. Uh, the church does not handle abuse well. Um, you know, I, I suffered from the abuse in my church and the response to it. Uh, and part of the reason that my church had that response to it is because unbeknown to me at that time, they actually had a history of covering up sexual abuse in the church. Um, so the, the church was fraught with problems. I was far from the only person left devastated by that church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something I learned as I got older. Uh, in addition to that, as I, uh, you know, just started to understand what had happened with Larry and started to, um, you know, wrestle with the wounds and the damage, uh, the way the church typically handles suffering and frequently handles issues of abuse in general uh, is very damaging. So I heard a lot of um, you know, comments made about abuse. I heard mishandling of scripture and scriptural stories. Um, yeah, and it, was, it really deepened uh, the damage that was done. It really put up a significant wall to finding hope and healing because it misrepresented Christ to me. It misrepresented God's justice. It misrepresented uh, the depth of the damage that had been done. So it was quite a process to work through that. Ultimately, uh, the the answer to that is I don't trust the church. I trust Jesus. Mm -hmm. I don't find my security in a man-made church. I find my security in the body of Christ uh, that God has fashioned and put together. Uh, and Jesus is worth fighting for. So his bride is worth fighting for. I do believe that you know, when properly taught and understood, the gospel provides the greatest refuge. Uh, it provides us you know, the, the existence of absolute truth, the existence of a creator, provides us with the ability to look at something like sexual abuse and say, this is evil. And I know it's evil because I know what good is. I know there's a standard of right and wrong, so I can call this wrong. It provides us with a framework for justice. It provides us with a theology that is able to still uphold justice in all of its glory while providing a path to forgiveness, uh, because forgiveness is not dependent on uh, working off our good deeds uh, or our bad deeds, and forgiveness does not mean minimizing the evil that was done to us. Uh, as if my perpetrator saying the right words would make the damage go away. Um, so I, I do believe the gospel is the greatest refuge, uh, but it really had to come down to under properly understanding theology, properly understanding scripture, um, and being able to hold to Christ and not the man-made church. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Um, now, when you read the story about USA Gymnastics and the Indy Star that led you to send your tip, your email to the reporter about what had happened to you, um, how did you feel in that moment that you sent send on that email, knowing that that could upend your entire life? Uh, it was it was very difficult. Um, it was it was not something I ever wanted to do. It was something I was always willing to do. I had waited by that point about sixteen years for just a chance to be believed. Uh, at the time, I started to understand what Larry had done and, uh, and disclosed to my mom about a year after uh, seeing him 
And I started to figure out how bad the abuse was, how deep it went. Um, my mom and I uh, went on a, we were walking around the block together and she said, you know, we, we need to tell the police. You're not the only one. We know you're not the only one. And I was sure of that uh, because what he did to me was very brazen and very rehearsed. It, I was clearly not a test case. I wasn't mm-hmm. his first victim. Uh, and we know pedophiles don't stop. And so mom and I both really felt the incredible weight of everyone who had come before, who may or may not even realize what they had been through, uh, and everyone who was going to come after me. Uh, but by that point, I also understood the uphill battle that you face when you speak against a perpetrator who is beloved in the community, much less a perpetrator like Larry, who is surrounded by a Big Ten university, who is surrounded by a national Olympic governing body like USAG, uh, who is tied into the United States Olympic Committee, uh, and who is tied to a sport that makes uh, millions and millions of dollars in the Olympics, one of the highest grossing sports. And I knew that if If I was not able to generate enough public pressure, both to reach other survivors and encourage them to come forward and generate enough public pressure to take the narrative out of Larry's control uh, and to overcome these institutions that I was confident had been shielding Larry up till that point, uh, had already been ignoring warning signs. Uh, You know, because another thing that we know about uh, pedophiles is that they're reported numerous times before they're caught. And the fact that Larry had been a doctor for so long By the time he saw me, I was confident that there were others who had spoken up before me. Uh, And I was right. I I found out later that there were many who had spoken up before me and they had all been silenced. Uh, And so at that time, I said, I can't do this without public pressure. I can't do this without the news. I have to have media involvement. Uh, And mom and I just weren't sure what to do with that. The last thing I wanted to do was to let Larry know that he couldn't be caught, to file a police report and lose, uh, because that often causes perpetrators to escalate. And I knew I would only get one chance to stop him. Uh, and I didn't feel that there was anything I could do without media involvement, uh, something to take the control from him. And so for 16 years, that's really what I'd waited for, just any chance of being believed. Uh, I did disclose at one point to a coach uh, who was uh, in USAG, and um, you know, and she was, she was a very good friend. Uh, and she told me, warned me about saying anything else. Uh, because she was concerned about the fallout from me. Uh, and so that again emphasized, you know, if I can't even get a friend to believe me, there is nothing I can do without media involvement. Um, so that moment with the Indy Star was something I had been waiting for. I had put a great deal of time and effort into uh, and thought into what would need to happen if that moment ever arose. Um, so it, was, it wasn't something I had to struggle through uh, in terms of making the decision to do it, uh, because it had to be done. But it was very heavy because I knew what it would mean for our family. I knew what it would mean for me uh, if Andy Starr decided to pick up that story. Did it feel like when you saw the original story that um, that made you feel to send the email, was that like a like a blazing message from God where you just knew in that very moment? You know, what God was going to do with it uh, is never something uh, that I can predict but I was very certain that this was this was it. This was the moment. And you wrote it in needed, the, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just it, you know, it needed to be done now. The spotlight, mm-hmm. from a media perspective, the spotlight right. only comes around to an issue once. And so I knew if it didn't happen now, it was going to be years before anybody was considering the issue of sexual abuse in USAG again. Yeah, that makes sense. And I and you really emphasize the importance of journalism and good journalism mm-hmm. in the book. Um, 
you know, we hear a lot of hate against the press these days, but I think this book, your new book, really showcases how important and vital good journalists are to getting Absolutely. these kinds of stories out there. Um, and I love you write that the reality that you knew that the reality was that success in this case was not defined by result, but by faithfulness. And so even knowing that what you wanted to happen as far as exposing him and making sure that justice was served, you didn't, that was not for sure when you went into mm -hmm. this, but you knew that it was a kind of like, it was a faithfulness thing for you. You felt God was calling you to do it. And so you did it. Um, can you talk about how you, as you were going through this with three little kids and then pregnant with your fourth, um, just this chaotic time, how did you maintain your composure and your just even handedness as a mom on a daily basis, never knowing until the end what was going to happen? Yeah, it was, um, it was difficult. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't think I can ever articulate honestly how difficult it was. Um, you know, everything, absolutely everything was affected. Uh, my sleep, you know, I, I had a, a baby who didn't really sleep well at that point anyway. So we were already sleep deprived from you know, six years of having babies one after the other in succession, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a, an incredible gift. But I was exhausted going into this. I was already exhausted. Um, you know, but opening, opening those old wounds up meant having nightmares every night. Uh, and so the exhaustion level emotionally and physically was just uh, quite extreme. Uh, we had constant disruption to our day. You know, we could start a day out normally and by 10 o'clock in the morning, it would be completely derailed with phone calls from detectives and investigators and attorneys. Um, you know, at that point I was the only one speaking publicly and for a long time I was the only one speaking publicly. Um, and that meant that the weight of carrying the story forward, um, really fell on me. So you know, constant calls, with news agencies walking reporters uh, and investigative reporters through the story, walking them through the Michigan law, walking them through the medical information, helping them understand the medical and legal complexities of the case so that they could report on it correctly in a way that would reach other survivors. Uh, you know, all of those things had to happen on a daily basis and you don't get a lot of warning for things like that. Uh, so the disruption to the day was continual. Yeah, you know, there were days that I had to switch the day I grocery shopped, weeks that I had to switch the day I grocery shopped because I knew there was going to be a news article coming out and I didn't want to risk my children seeing me, uh, you know, on, a, on the newsstand. Um, so all of the just the very practical realities of day-to-day -day living uh, were very difficult. Uh, the emotional aspects were very, very difficult um, because it was, uh, it was deeply painful. Um, to be walking through that, to be immersed in my own story, uh, to have lost all privacy. Uh, yeah, and so all of those things were just constant weights the day. Um, yeah, and I think there's a balance that really has to be struck when you're walking through uh, healing from trauma or reopening trauma or going through new trauma. I, I do consider the last two years you know, a continuation of the trauma, but a lot of new trauma, honestly, uh, because of the process that had to, that had to be used. Um, you know, there's a balance of giving yourself time and space to grieve, which you don't have a lot of as a young mom, mom of young kids. Um, and so you have practical, practical things like uh, Jacob taking the kids so I could have 20 minutes uh, to myself sometimes was really important. Uh, it was a struggle 
to find the time needed to grieve. Uh, and that was one of the most difficult things. Uh, but also finding that balance of letting yourself grieve, but also making sure that you're present in the moment and enjoying the good gifts you've been given in the moment. Um, and so there were times that I would you know, take the kids out for a walk and we would just be very intentional about what we saw. Look at that beautiful flower. Do you hear the birds singing? Do you feel the sunshine? Um, and just walking with my kids through being thankful for what we're surrounded by, looking for the beauty around us. Uh, and reminding myself to be present now, present in this moment. You know, and a lot of that really does have to do with our perspective on faithfulness. I couldn't control what was going to happen in an hour, whether I'd get a press call or you know, something that was just going to upend our day. I couldn't control when I would have to be in court next. You know, I couldn't control what was going to happen. All I could, con all I could do was be faithful in the moment that I had this moment right now, whether that's changing a child's diaper, teaching my four, three-year-old to read, um, you know, cuddling or playing hockey with my then five-year-old son. All I had was that moment. And so I had to do a lot of reminding myself to just be faithful with this moment. Um, you know, I think that's a battle all of us have to yeah. one degree or another, because all of us have wounds that we're healing from. All of us have struggles. They might look different, but we all have those things to work through. Yeah, I think kids, especially little kids, um, they kind of force you to be in that moment because you cannot, yes. sometimes you literally cannot focus on anything else when they're, <laughs> yeah. when they're crying or when you're with them and, and you don't want to. So I, I've found that true for myself lately, having a three and a one-year-old, it's, um, you can't get caught up in your own stuff while you're with them. So, right. um, now one thing I wanted to talk about was you talk about this, this concept of community protectionism both in churches and in organizations like USA Gymnastics. Um, and this is perpetuated and we're seeing it more widespread than we ever realized. Like I've, I've been really shocked by um, what I've learned through reading your book and just reading through this case and what's been going on in the church. And I am, you know, can you talk to us about why does this exist? Why do people want to protect abusers? I, I have a hard time understanding how, you know, you went to a coach of yours and she shut you down and p multiple, multiple people over the years were shut down and shut down again. What makes people protect abusers? Yeah, I, th I think that's a key question that we have to wrestle with. Um, I think the first part of answering that is by and large, most people don't want to protect abusers. Uh, and that's part of what makes it difficult to spot community protectionism, to understand when you are part of community protectionism. Uh, because most people will say child abuse is horrible. Most people will say, speak up and report and stop the abuser. But by and large, when that opportunity happens, when you're seeing warning signs or when you dis receive a disclosure of abuse uh, or you hear an allegation of abuse, how we respond when it's in our own community is often very different than how we think we're going to respond. And we often don't see uh, the incongruity in our response. Um, so everyone has a community, has multiple communities that they're part of. You know, we all of us have, uh, to some degree or another, we have alma maters. We have uh, religious institutions or physical churches or denominations that we're part of. Uh, we have political institutions that we're a part of. We have physical communities that we're a part of. We have families that we're a part of. Uh, so we all have these, these circles of community that we move in. And usually we're attached to that community to some degree or another because we agree with the motivations and goals and ideas uh, of that community. We have an emotional attachment to that community. We have history within that community. Um, and so it makes it very difficult 
to be willing to see an allegation of abuse because when you when it's in your own community that's when it would cost that's when you would have to uh, lose you know, be faced with potentially I might have to change the candidate I vote for I might have to say something about the spiritual leader or the denomination uh, that has done so much good in my life uh, I might have to uh, stop supporting this particular coach uh, who I've loved or this sports team that I've supported all my life you know to some degree or another it would cost to see abuse in our own communities um, and there are a wide variety of reasons uh, that people mishandle disclosures of abuse. Um, but particularly in the church context, a lot of it comes down to our theology, misunderstanding concepts of forgiveness, misunderstanding what grace looks like, uh, having a view of counseling that doesn't allow us to rely on outside experts uh, to understand how abusers work and operate, having a view of male-female uh, submission and authority uh, that leaves the wife in a dangerous situation. Uh, sexual abuse within marriage is much more common, uh, particularly in conservative circles, actually, than people realize. Uh, having a view of sexuality uh, that leaves a, uh, a husband in total control of the demands he gets to make and the wife's responsibility to fulfill whatever her husband wants. Um, you know, so we have all of these in the church, in particular, theological reasons. And many times leaders believe they are doing the right thing. They truly believe they have done the right thing. And when someone points out the error, the automatic response is, you're persecuting me for doing the right thing. I'm just following the Bible, and you're persecuting me. You want to destroy the church. You want to destroy this man of God. Or we don't see, we see the incongruity. How could this you know, particular spiritual leader, how could he have written so many good books? How could he have been so influential in my life and yet have done this? It's not possible. There must be, you know, there must be a mistake. Or these people must be angry, bitter survivors who just want to destroy the church or they're embellishing. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see the incongruity. We don't understand oftentimes that most of the people who, sh who shelter abusers and mishandle uh, abuse disclosures are doing it because they believe they've done the right thing. Uh, we tend to think of someone who uh, enables abuse as being a person who looks at a pedophile and goes, I think pedophilia is great. I'm going to let that person keep abusing children. That's not what most people think. Most people know abuse is wrong, but they don't understand how poorly they've handled it. Uh, and so we have a lot of um, hang-ups to being able to understand even what enabling looks like, what a cover-up looks like. Um, and then we have a lot of, in the church, particularly theological reasons uh, that we're very loath to really dig into uh, and to examine. And it would cost. Yeah, and, and that's really... I think where, where we have to realize the most is what you do when it would cost is the indicator of how much you really understand about abuse uh, and how much you really care about abuse. Uh, and and this, is, this is continually perpetuated. To this day, I have, uh, you know, probably at least on a monthly basis, there will be something that comes up in the news, some sort of sexual abuse issue that comes up in the news, and I will comment on it. Um, and I will immediately have people from that particular community saying, I support what you did with Larry, but mm. it's different over here. Yeah. Yeah, the, number, the number of people that have tried to educate me on the evidentiary differences between my case and XYZ case in the press uh, is amusing to me because I put together my case. I know exactly how strong my case was. I know what evidence I had. Uh, you know, and there are cases that are out there uh, in the press that have far more evidence than I had when I came forward. Um, yeah, and yet people want to say, well, I appreciate what you did with Larry, 
but yeah. And that's by and large because it would cost, it would be painful to entertain the idea that abuse could be happening in this particular community that people are a part of. Uh, and the, the damage to that, you know, by and large, is that it's those who are in that community that are capable of stopping the abuser and supporting the victim. It's the people closest to that community that are capable of seeing the warning signs, capable of communicating, this is not okay in our community. We will not tolerate this in our community. And yet it's that very community that is going to be most likely to inadvertently shelter the abuser and silence the victim. Mm -hmm. So we have the most ability to do good in our own communities, but we also have by far the most ability to damage in our communities. In your final testimony um, at the trial against Larry, you, you said this, I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Sorry, it gets me choked up. Um, you offered forgiveness to him. How difficult was that for you? Uh, it was a 16-year process. Uh, you know, I think for the first four years in particular, understanding what forgiveness meant, um, how to navigate that, um, yeah, and getting to the point Larry, um, it was a years-long process. Mm-hmm. I had fortunately um, been able to reach that point many years earlier. Um, but... Had the church handled concepts of forgiveness and justice well in how they were preached on, uh, how they discussed abuse, how they discussed damage, how they discussed trauma, it would have been a much easier process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because a lot of the difficulty and the struggle that I went through with forgiveness um, was knowing um, how the church typically handles those things. Um, And I really felt like forgiveness would be almost weaponized against me. Mm -hmm. It is so common to hear church leaders say, you know, you, you disclose something terrible that's happened or, you, or they're discussing something terrible that's happened. Yeah, and the immediate response is, but look at all the great things God has done out of it. As if those beautiful things that God has brought out of it somehow erase the absolute evil that was done or mitigate the pain or mitigate the damage. It doesn't. Yeah, and we need to be able to hold those things in tension. God's redemption and His ability to redeem our stories and the things that we go through is an incredible comfort, and it's beautiful. But when it's weaponized that way to minimize the evil and to minimize the damage, uh, it become instead of being the greatest comfort, it becomes a weapon mm-hmm. against those who have suffered. And so one of my biggest concerns with forgiveness was I knew if I get to the point of forgiving my abuser, that's what everybody's going to want to get to. Everybody loves the good, happy, feel-good story. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to sit with the damage and the evil and the pain. Uh, and and ultimately, to be honest, that's a lot of what happened, even in the evangelical community. Um, you know, I did feel it was important to communicate the gospel to Larry and to offer him forgiveness. Um, but I found it very interesting uh, that you know I spoke for about forty minutes, uh, and the vast majority of that was a plea for justice, laying out the evil, uh, p- painting the picture of God's holiness and God's justice. Uh, and and asking the judge, you know, I was there asking the judge to give Larry the maximum sentence. Mm-hmm. I had spent the last two years of my life uh, avidly pursuing justice at great personal cost. And yet, uh, out of everything that I said and did, every evangelical outlet that reported on that all jumped right to the forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where they focused. They didn't talk about God's justice. 
They didn't talk about the pursuit of justice. Uh, they didn't talk about what it cost uh, to pursue justice or why justice was important. In fact, many outlets even time-stamped my victim impact statement at the point where I offered Larry forgiveness and completely bypassed God's justice as the foundation for forgiveness. Um, and I think some of that is because that feels better to us. We yeah. like the feel-good story. But when we do that, really, really undercut the concept of forgiveness. We undercut the theological foundation for forgiveness. Can we have, can justice and mercy exist at the same time? It exists in God at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Those are two defining characteristics that God has. uh, And we need to learn how to handle those theologically. We need to learn how to hold those uh, side by side because they really are at the foundation for each other. Mercy means nothing if you don't understand justice. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness means nothing if you don't understand justice. Uh, But God's justice also means, you know, God's justice is predicated on the atonement. It's forgiveness is predicated on the atonement. Um, And so we don't get to forgiveness until someone has already shed their blood to pay the price. Mm -hmm. In the Christian the Christian theology and framework of forgiveness, justice is always done. Either justice comes to my abuser, to each of us individually, or justice falls on an all-holy God who took our place. But justice is always done. Yeah, and and again, we don't we don't paint that picture very well in Christianity. Oftentimes, we look at it like forgiveness wipes out the consequences. Forgiveness erases the consequences. No, it doesn't. Forgiveness just transfers some of those consequences, the eternal consequences, onto a willing, uh, a willing sacrifice. Yeah, and because we often miss that in how we teach forgiveness, we also often have the perspective that forgiveness erases all of the present temporal consequences, mm-hmm. and it and it doesn't. You know, there are consequences to committing crimes, uh, and receiving eternal forgiveness from God does not always mean, in fact, often does not mean, that the consequences from those crimes here on earth are erased. Yeah, I Justice think, is still done. I think you're articulating something so well that is very misunderstood, very important, and I to agree that I have always, you always hear that forgiveness equals healing, forgiveness equals freedom, um, and that may be so in part, but I think you're so right in that it's not, it's not at all the whole story. Um, no. Well, Rachel, moving forward, you, you're now, you know, you're a speaker on this issue, you're writing on this issue, you you are, you know, everywhere, um, you know, on panels. It's not something you ever wanted to be doing, but now here you are. Moving forward, what is your mission or what is your goal um, in what you're you're doing and what you're speaking about? Uh, I think to a large degree, the goal is the same as it is every day, and that is faithfulness with what I've been given. I mean, you know, we're, I walk through balancing uh, family and marriage and homeschooling my children uh, with uh, this very unexpected platform that God has given that you're right, I didn't, I didn't want. I never wanted to be teaching on this issue. I never wanted to be a public figure, much less a public figure because of my own sexual abuse. Um, and so it is, it is really a balancing act of faithfulness and focusing on the job that I've been given right now. And sometimes that job is homeschooling my children in that moment. Sometimes it's making lunch or changing a diaper. 
you know, or just cuddling a child who needs to be held, uh, being faithful to my husband, supportive of my husband. And sometimes that job is speaking. You know, and so it, my focus is faithfulness with what I am given each day. I think that is great advice and a great way to live. Well, I thank you so much, Rachel, for taking the time to talk with me today. I think you have such an important message. Um, and I just, thanks for writing your book and, and doing this. I know it's exhausting, um, but I think you're making a real difference. So I really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Well, thanks for listening to my conversation with with Rachel, you guys. Uh, the awareness around sexual abuse within churches and organizations as a whole is so very important. If you're listening today, you're more aware than you were before. We have the power to do the most good and the most harm. You heard it from Rachel. If you found this episode helpful, I hope you'll share it with others. I can't think of a more important message in this day and age. Thanks so much for sharing your ears with me today. Now, go be faithful in the day and the people and the tasks that God has put before you. I'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.